0: One of the high points of any trip is to take in the local art scene. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In Europe, that usually means you'll get close to the icons of Western civilization.
1: Oh, the French. Do they still admire so much this emperor?
0: Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're delving deeper into the art scene in Paris, where fine museums and monuments seem to wait around every corner. Then we'll consider Ireland, where the greatest works
2: reside on paper or in that wonderful Irish gift of gab. We love stories. We love stories. And all that survives, in fact, from prehistory in Ireland are stories, the fables, the myths, the legends. Coming up, we'll get an Irish view of that country's
0: celebrated literary scene. And to appreciate one of the greatest artists of all time, it
3: wouldn't hurt to start in Florence. Right there, you're immersed in Michelangelo's world and the world that he grew up in. We're enjoying an artistic pilgrimage to Paris,
0: Dublin, and Florence. It's travel with Rick Steves guides and scholars help Europe's treasures come alive in the hour ahead. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We'll experience Michelangelo's Florence and Ireland's literary legacy in just a bit. But a good place to start, as always, is Paris. For me, Paris is the capital of Europe. If you enjoy sightseeing, you could go there for the rest of your life and never run out of great things to see. And if you ever did, you could just start seeing the other ones again because you can go to these museums again and again and find yourself swept up by the wonders of Western civilization. To learn more about navigating the museums of Paris, we're joined today by Elizabeth Van Hest, who's a guide in Paris and who knows just how to point us in the right direction. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. Merci. Elizabeth, if you're going to Paris and you want to get caught up in the art, of course we've got the famous museums, the Louvre and so on, but if you want to get a little bit away from that and do some surprising museums, what's a museum that gives you a sense for elegant, aristocratic life in the 19th century in the great city of Paris?
1: There are several houses that were built or owned by very wealthy people in the 19th century, and one of the most, well, elegant one, I think, is jacques Marandre.
0: And where's that located?
1: Uh, that's on the Boulevard Haussmann. You know, approximately between Arc de Triomphe and and Opera. Okay, so you could idea? you could sort of
0: tie it in on your way to the Arc de Triomphe. You could. Yes, uh, it's the Jacques Mart Andre Museum. Yes. What what is exceptional about this house?
1: Well, first of all, you learn a, a little bit about Paris, how it was extended in the 19th century, because very wealthy people purchased ground in this district and uh, set up these beautiful houses. It was. A more or less a competition.
0: It must have been a competition because you stepped into this house and they had no children so, and they had yes. a love of art oh, yes. and apparently they had endless money.
1: In fact, it was first of all uh, the man uh, who had the money and he needed a wife uh, and he found a good solution uh, marrying a painter. She uh, had known him because he asked her to paint a portrait. Huh. And finally they got married. And she never painted anymore, although he built a special studio for her in his house. And then they started traveling
0: all over the world. And their talents together and his financial resources yes. probably enabled them to choose oh, good, yes. good art.
1: Yes, and they, they were very close to directors, conservators of museums, uh-huh. and got all this information... Especially the so lady. So this Nari. is a
0: very good point to to see some uh, aristocratic house yes. in Paris. Yes. Oh yes, it's and beautiful. I would say Jacques Mart Andre would be the one to see. If you're looking for modern art in Paris and you you don't want to go to a museum, you just want to see modern art happening today, the the business metabolism of the art community. What do you do?
1: I would send you immediately to La Defense, and you can see it outside. No,
0: that's right. You go to La Defense, and this is this uh, forest of skyscrapers outside of the center. Yes. It's the, the real Paris, I think. It's the modern yeah. business sort of Paris. Yes. There's a striking amount of just far out, colorful, playful modern art.
1: Yes, there is Miro. Right. There is Calder. Yeah. And the Spider.
0: And these are not small things you'd put in your living room. No. These are huge, no. the size of churches, kind of buildings yes. almost. that's you know, why you usually art.
1: don't see this kind of art inside of museums. Okay. Because it's so big. It should be in the open air.
0: Who pays for this? How, how does this great art happen in oh, the public square in Paris?
1: Well, I'm afraid uh, it's the taxpayer.
0: It's the taxpayer. Yes,
1: because the government spends, if I'm right, I think 2% of the cost of architecture, of the building, uh, on culture.
0: And if you want to just kind of hobnob with local people out shopping for, for art, give me some ideas about that in Paris.
1: Oh, I think the best is to go first to the left bank. Uh Still, you know, we call the left bank the intellectual bank. Oh, yeah. And uh, you have these narrow streets. Of course, there are lots of art galleries, antique shops, So they'll they'll have,
0: like, open houses?
1: Yes. Well, first of all, if uh, one of the uh, art galleries organizes an exhibition, then they will invite, of course, the clients. Right. uh, And uh, you can just uh, be invited for the vernissage.
0: It's called a vernissage, vernissage, and this is basically an open house at a gallery where there'd be wine and cheese and yes. fancy local people yes. and, and a few tourists yes. sneaking in. Oh, yes. And you can see the art of this particular yes. exhibit.
1: If, if you walk along the street and you see this, just bump him and you see. Can um, you
0: read about that in the Periscope or yes. something like this?
1: and now you see we have all kind of information on the Internet as well. Galleries. Galleries.
0: All right. Now or the
1: Galerie d'Art.
0: Art gallery, say, yes. Oh, yes. Okay, so in the Periscope, that's good. Paris is amazing to me because every time I come back there seems to be a new museum and a a few years ago they opened up a wonderful museum for uh, primitive, so-called primitive art.
1: Yes, yes. Um, There is a long discussion because primitive in French has a second signification. If you say primitive, like also we say for the Gothic, it's early, but you can also consider it as less important. Ah. So we usually call this museum Musée du Quai Branly. Okay. It was especially uh, the, the wish of our former president, Jacques Chirac.
0: So the K. Branley that's like uh, the key along the river, along yes. the same year, B-R-A-N-L-E-Y. Yes. And this is a, sort of a striking building, an oh, or, yes. organic sort of uh, wild building filled with art from yes. uh, Polynesia, Oceania, uh, Native Americans, America. uh, Africans, a lot of masks,
1: Yes. And uh,
0: musical instruments.
1: Exactly. And you learn a lot about their culture
0: you learn more about those people. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, talking with Elizabeth Van Hest about enjoying the art and the culture and the museums of Paris. Elizabeth, there's a lot of French connection with the Arab world, and there's a huge Arab community in Paris. Oh, yes. How can we learn more about that?
1: Oh, you can go to the uh, Institut du monde arabe, if I can understand Institute. it, the Institute
0: of the Arab World. Yes, exactly. Nice. The Institute of the Arab World. What will yes. you find there?
1: Well, everything concerning the civilization of these Arabian countries. You know, there has huh. been always a, a very tight link between yeah. France and Arabian countries. And it was more to make also the French more familiar with this civilization. So you have often very uh, big exhibitions. Right. And there is a library
0: So there is a a long-established connection from France and the Arab world, originally, I suppose, in a colonial sense. Yes. And then in post-colonial times, a lot of immigrant laborers coming into France. Yes. And it's just constructive to have a museum that respects Arab culture, Yes. where people can learn and share and celebrate. Exactly. So the Institute of the Arab World, if you want to follow that up just by going to the wild and crazy modern art museum tell us about that
1: oh you have to cross the river first and then you look for the Hotel de Ville which Uh is the city hall and then keep walking and you get to the Centre Pompidou
0: and the Pompidou Centre I I always think you hardly need the address because when you see it you'll know that's got to be modern art
1: you know what we call it no the refinery why well, there are all these pipes, you know? That's all these. right.
0: All the guts are on the outside of the building.
1: Yes. Everything what usually an architect hides in the building.
0: Could you call that form follows function?
1: Well, yes, because every pipe has a function.
0: All the practical things are outside, so the rooms are more free and open inside. Yes.
1: Uh, that was the idea. In fact, you know, it was an idea of President Pompidou, who died about uh-huh. 30, 40 years ago. He was very interested in modern art, and he thought that... Paris was losing its um, It's rank uh, as an art city. Well, they certainly
0: created the big center named after Pompidou. Yes. Now, this vast building, it's got all of the pipes, the water pipes, the air pipes, and so on, outside, color-coded, I believe. Yes,
1: yes. Blue is uh, for the air, green is for water, uh, yellow is for the electricity, and red is for the elevator escalator.
0: Beautiful. And that escalator takes you up and Uh, up and up. To the Probably one of the best free views in town at the top of that.
1: Well, it's not as free as that anymore. Oh, you can't go up there for free anymore? No, not anymore. because I love going up there for my little free view. Well, I suppose when you come to Paris, you have your museum pass. That's a good point. And then you can go, even if you don't want to go to the art collection, you go up to the building and you have one of the most beautiful views.
0: One reason to get that museum pass is just so you can pop into things without considering the price. Exactly.
1: And you can get in without lining up.
0: So there's long lines. The biggest lines, uh, Saint-Chapelle, the Orsay, the Louvre, uh, Versailles, all of these you can just cut right to the front of the line because those lines are actually people waiting to buy tickets. Yes. And you've already got a ticket when you got the pass. Yes,
1: exactly, Eric. Uh, I must be honest, the exception to the rule is the Saint-Chapelle. Oh, is that right? Because you know, the line is not to get into the museum, the Saint-Chapelle, the chapel, but the line is for the security check. That's right? And you see the Saint-Chapelle was built inside of the courtyard of the royal palace in the 13th century when the kings were still living in that palace. And this has become the palace of justice, the court.
0: So this is like the Supreme Court of France yes. right there. So yes. if you're a tourist, you can't just waltz in there with your pass. You need to be checked very carefully to yes. get into that courtyard. Now you've got the museum pass. This is one of the most people are so thankful to know about this museum pass. It's not just to save money, although if you are busy sightseeing, you will save money. You have the convenience of being able to pop into things just for fun. You're on the Place des Vosges and you see a a wonderful little building in the corner. Whose house is it?
1: And you go to Victor Hugo. Yeah, and I wouldn't pay 10 bucks to see Victor Hugo, but if it's right there,
0: I'll pop in. Well, it's the same
1: for the tomb of Napoleon. That's right. You have to pay a lot of money and now you can just walk in and look at it. And probably you will think, oh, the French, do they still admire so much this emperor? <laughs>
0: oh, man. I think a lot of people have stood there and been awestruck.
1: Yes, you could say so. Now, if
0: you're looking to avoid crowds in Paris, and there's a lot of tourists in Paris if you hit it during busy times, what are some tricks to to make it easier? Are some of the museums open in the evening?
1: Yes. More and more, I would say.
0: So check out with the, exhibitions, the listings and so because on. And in the evening, you will rarely have a line yes. at a museum. I understand... The Louvre and the Orsay yes. on some nights will be open late?
1: Now, the Louvre is open on Wednesday uh-huh. and Friday evening. Late? Yes. Nice. Yes, until officially a quarter to 10. But you see, when the friends are closing, they start to close early. <laughs> so always think that about 45 minutes or half an hour before closing time, you have to make your way out.
0: Right. So they start shutting down the extremities, I've found. So if you go to the very end of the museum and work your way closed, then you can spend your last frantic 15 minutes in the rooms nearest to the door. You can walk slowly out, you know. (laughs) Humoring the guards. Yes. And also when you are going to the Eiffel Tower now, this is notorious for its long lines. I understand they're having a new innovative way to help people avoid those lines. Yes,
1: they started to do it only for groups, and Mm -hmm. now it's also on individual base.
0: That you can make a reservation online.
1: Yes, the only thing is... Ah, of course, I never, I never tried it because I don't need to make reservation to go to the Eiffel Tower. I've been there so many times. But right. if you have a little time, I can understand. It's very good to make your booking. Only you can't know what weather it will be on that day.
0: Well, now that's the downside of making a yes. reservation in advance. Yes. Well, you can hope for sunshine when you're but in nothing
1: Paris. nothing is perfect, Rick.
0: Paris is the city of light. For me, it's always a beautiful day in Paris. It's very pretty. Elizabeth Van Hest, thank you so much for helping us better enjoy uh, Your beautiful city.
1: Merci, and I wait for you in Paris. Au revoir.
0: Irish guide Barry Maloney waxes eloquent on his country's love for the spoken word. It's up next on Travel with Rick Steves.
4: David Sedaris from the United States, and I travel with Rick Steves. Watashi wa David Sedaris. Des. Wait, I travel with Rick Steve, Rick Steves' is son. But uh, you know what? always gets a laugh in Japan. Always. What's that? You finish your business, and then you say, "Itekimas," and that means <laughs> that? I'm leaving now, and people howl with laughter. Is that right? I Itekimas itashimashite. That means you're welcome. Hi
0: Of all the places I've traveled in Europe, I think there's more literary greats and literary impact and literary passion per square mile and per person in Ireland than anywhere else. And possibly it's because in Ireland, people have this wonderful gift of gab, but I think it's really there's something special about Ireland and its literary heritage. We're joined by Barry Maloney, who lives in County Cork in the south of Ireland. He's a guide in Ireland. And we're going to learn more about the Irish literary history. Barry, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me. What is it with the the love of literature that, that comes with Ireland?
2: Well, it really goes right back to our roots because Ireland were a Celtic nation and the Irish language was initially an oral language, not written down.
0: The The traditions and so on spoken from... Generation to generation after Europe was writing things down
2: yes we we love stories, and all that survives in fact from prehistory in Ireland are stories, the fables, the myths, the legends.
0: your prehistory did it last longer than western europe's prehistory, meaning when the advent of yes. written history
2: yeah the first written history came to Ireland with the church with the church with Christianity okay, in the fifth century
0: now Ireland has had it's a small island with a humble economy, a humble history. And yeah, a rich literary history. Mm -hmm. Do you think the toughness of your people's story has given you more of a collective life experience to draw from for your literature?
2: That's very true. Very true. Uh, You may have read um, Frank McCourt's wonderful books, Angela's Ashes. Uh And he he wrote of that. He said he would a poor childhood. And not only that, a poor Catholic childhood. And not only that, a poor Catholic childhood in Limerick. And so he had, you know... So he had a
0: rich uh,
2: trove of uh,
0: ideas to draw from. A trove of inspiration. My feeling in Ireland is that I'm so charmed by the language and my my sense is it's more romantic and lilting and creative than other English-speaking people. And my hunch is, and just tell me what you think about this, that Ireland has a Celtic template for its way of speaking and thinking. And the Celtic language might be more creative and, and lend itself towards poetry more than the English template. And then people who speak English, at least subconsciously, are in their DNA. They're translating from this Celtic kind of baseline. Does that make any sense to you?
2: Very much, yeah. Irish is our first language, and therefore English is not our mother tongue. So Irish artists and writers traditionally played with English. And, of course, the best example you have is James Joyce, are these Irish writers that are so famous, do they speak Gaelic generally? Uh, no, but it comes from the tradition. That's the tradition they, they grew up in. It's in the blood, and it's in what they'd hear if they, go, if they it, travel to the west of Ireland. They'd hear this playing with language. And, of course, the Book of Kells, one of the most famous manuscripts in, in Europe, is in Dublin, and that also involves playing with language.
0: So the, the, language. the literary treasure of Ireland is more than famous writers and famous works. It's in the farmer's voice.
2: Mm-hmm. It's in yeah. the
0: fisherman's voice.
2: The wit. The wittiest person is the most popular person in Ireland, you know? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. In
0: school? As you're a schoolboy, the, the, the witty person would oh, yeah. be the popular yeah. kid. Yeah, he,
2: gets, he got the, got the girls. He school. got the girls. No matter how ugly he was, you know?
0: I got that sense when I'm traveling in Ireland <laughs> that it's very cool to be a good conversationalist, oh, a yeah. clever conversationalist. Yeah, the, quick, the, quick the, quick wit, the quick retort. The quick retort. Okay, let's talk about high literature here for a minute. Mm -hmm. How do you best appreciate the high literature in Ireland if you are a tourist, a sightseer?
2: Oh, well, uh, first of all, most people fly into Dublin, and that's a great start uh, in Dublin because you've got tours in Dublin, you've got literary tours. The literary tours, those are wonderful. You get at
0: a pub, (laughs) and three actors take you around town to different pubs. You slowly feel the buzz of the beer, and they fill you with all sorts of beautiful Irish literary examples. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good evening, everybody. Good
5: evening.
4: You're very, very welcome to the Dublin Literary Pub Crawl.
1: Right, the more observant of you will have noticed that this is not a pub, but we will be in a pub very shortly. This is what we call a culture stop without any drink. The next stop we call a drink stop without any culture.
2: I I highly recommend that when people are in Dublin, the Literary Pub Crawl. It's excellent to just get into the spirit of things. Also, you've got the Dublin Writers' Centre, which now is more towards modern literature. Often you come across readings in there.
0: So the culture is really supporting and funding or underwriting the contemporary literature as well as the celebrating the old guys.
2: Yeah. I mean, you may have seen the movie or read the book recently, uh, The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. And John Boyne, he's, he's an, a Dublin writer who wrote that book. And, uh, you know, a spectacular story. And you'd often meet him in the Dublin Writers' Centre. Ireland's so small, you can, you know, shake hands with the...
0: This is the, the amazing thing. Ireland's got, what, four million people or something and some small town... Uh, traditional music uh, guy or great writer will be in Dublin in in the high echelons of the culture and then tomorrow he's back out on the Aran Islands. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, that's
0: it. Now in Dublin if you want to enjoy the theatre what do you recommend?
2: Uh, There's two main theatres the Gate and the Abbey Theatre. Right. The Abbey Theatre co-founded by uh, W.B. Yeats Right. who is the closest we come to uh, you know the poet the poet of Ireland Yeats.
0: People talk about going to W.B. Yeats tomb uh, in his cemetery. Yeah. And they say it's one of the most moving experiences you can have in Ireland. It is. It how, is. how can it that
2: be? Breathtaking experience because of the setting. Right. The last poem he wrote requested that he be buried under the shadow of Bin Bulban, a very dramatic tabletop mountain on the west coast of Ireland. So where is that exactly? In County Sligo, west coast of Ireland.
0: So it's way over on the west. You can find the grave of W.B. Yeats. Yeah.
2: And the big mystery Yeats left behind was his epithet. People are still debating, scholars debate it today, what does it mean? Because wow. written in his gravestone is the simple message Cast a cold eye on debt, on life, horseman pass by. And that's his riddle. That's his riddle. I was gonna ask you what does it mean,
0: but apparently people don't know what it means. Still debating it.
4: Under Bear Ben Bulban's head in Drumcliffe Churchyard, yeats is laid. An ancestor was rector there long years ago. A church stands near, by the road an ancient cross. No marble, no conventional phrase. On limestone quarried near the spot, by his command these words are cut. Cast a cold eye on life, on death, horseman,
0: Pass by. Wow. Now, when I'm in Ireland and I want to really be inspired, I go to the Hill of Tara. Tell me what Hill of Tara means to Irish people.
2: Well, Tara was traditionally the seat of the high kings of Ireland.
0: Back in the days of St. Patrick? Yeah, and well be- before that. Before that. In
2: terms of Celtic chieftains, much like in North and so, South America, you tribal leaders okay. called chieftains. Right. And at one time, they were united by a high king and he sat in Tara. But also... Newgrange is, uh, you know, an ancient Irish monument built before the times of the pyramids, and it's also in that area.
0: So this is all just outside of Dublin, the sort of spiritual heart of Ireland before it was connected with the rest of Europe.
2: Yes, yes.
0: And of course, St. Patrick is famous there. Mm -hmm. St. Patrick went there to reach the people, is that right?
2: Yes. St. Patrick converted the Irish without uh, shedding a drop of blood through the power of storytelling and language.
0: How is he associated with the Hill of Tara?
2: He preached from there, and he converted a, a chieftain in that locality.
0: So he went there in order to do his work of converting the Irish, what, uh,
2: 1,500
0: years ago, something
2: like that. Yeah, yeah, in the early 5th century.
0: And then Daniel O'Connell. He's probably the George Washington of Ireland. Mm-hmm. He went to Tara True. the great orator.
2: Yeah, Barack Obama must have uh, studied Daniel O'Connell at some stage because he invented what they called the monster meeting.
0: So when we think of Obama during the campaign at these incredible speeches he gave to these vast crowds. Yeah. As an Irishman, you think of Daniel O'Connell at Terra talking to tens
2: of thousands of people. Yeah, well, sometimes up to and over half a million people before amplification. Before amplification. So can you imagine the confusion that created? The message would have to be passed. He would speak from on high and the message passed around. Oh,
0: and he was that good.
2: Yeah, that good. And of course, pamphlets would also be distributed, letting people know what he said.
0: Irish literary greats are just really passionate about describing their world. They say that if somehow Dublin was destroyed, it could be recreated just with the works of Joyce, Beckett, and Swift. Does that make sense to you?
2: Very true, very true. Which is ironic because Joyce and Beckett were exiles from Ireland, driven out by the power of the church and censorship, you know? But yet they loved it and recreated it in their memories, wrote in detail of the streets and the characters of Dublin. That you can actually, you know, you could build up a picture.
0: Now, if you are into Irish literature, it's probably exciting to be in Dublin on Bloomsday. Oh yes, what's yeah. that? What's that like?
2: Well, Bloomsday, sixteenth of June every year, is uh-huh. the day on which Ulysses is set, where the hero Leopold Bloom right. sets his day walking through Dublin, and people dress up in character basically, and you've tours. The foods are recreated, the foods written in the book, readings on every street corner. So people it's are really, really
0: into James Joyce.
2: Yeah, which again is ironic because at the time, all his books were banned across the board in Ireland. So, you know, Whoa, really? we've re reinvited him home, you know.
0: When I go to Ireland, I'm impressed by how much alcohol people consume. Mm-hmm. and it, It's sort of happy and it's sad at the same time. And I'm also impressed by this passion for communicating and talking and singing and literature. How much, to what degree does whiskey fuel the literature of Ireland?
2: Um, I suppose there is a common thread there, um, you know, and tragically that was the downfall of a lot of Irish writers. Writers such as Cavanagh, Bean had huge alcohol problems. And, huh. you know, today you have some musicians also that have this problem which limits their scope of what they could create. Uh, Beckett wrote famously that he said, you're a fool to drink when you're young. And you're a fool if you don't drink when you're old. Oh, hold on. So he you're loved, a fool uh,
0: to drink if you're young yeah. and you're a fool not to drink when you're old. Yeah.
2: So he, he liked, uh, you know, even though he, he didn't visit Ireland for the last 50 years of his life, he loved uh, the soft Irish whiskey and, uh, of course, he drank um, Protestant whiskey, you know. And, uh, now, what he, does you know, that mean? Well, that was his joke he described uh, is it because it's Protestant uh, Jameson he used to Jameson like, is yeah. Protestant known. Yeah.
0: it's from the north is that the, the
2: uh, no park? Jameson brewed in Middleton County Cork in Middleton okay yeah, but he used to he used to describe it as uh, Protestant whiskey anyway. the green bottle and he used to like uh, uh, that was one way of meeting Beckett in Paris bring a bottle of whiskey from Ireland and, and talk to him about Dublin oh really describe the streets has anything changed
0: if you want to be swept up in all of this and you want to write a poem where do you go to commune with nature
2: well if there's one place I'd pick out Off the beaten track, not on the tourist Bible, it would be in County Galway, a place called Cool Park.
0: Huh. Cool Park. Cool Park. How do you spell
2: that? Uh, C-O-O-L-E Park. And Uh. it's where seven ancient forests join. And basically, it's a forest walk today. Right. But it was the great inspiration of WB Yeats because his patron, Lady Gregory, lived there in a big country house. And so you can walk through the ancient forests and every so often you see a poem by WB Yeats presented well about the actual forest. And also you've got there what they call an autograph tree, where most of the famous Irish writers autograph their, carved their initials into into a tree. I suppose you have a
0: huge advantage if you're Irish in appreciating Irish literature because you understand the context that these literary geniuses are writing in.
2: That's true. Most people um, would have some point in their life seen uh, Waiting for Godot, uh-huh. the famous play by Beckett. And if you, if you go to the Wait, barn, Waiting
0: for Godot. We Godot. Say, yeah. Wait, how do you say it in, in Irish? Godot. Godot? Godot. but that's the correct way. Okay, waiting for Godot.
2: And uh, if you go to the Borne, I know you love the burn yourself. The Borne is
0: uh, a very desolate place on the west coast of Ireland. Okay,
2: godforsaken. Godforsaken. What did, what
0: did Cromwell say, or Cromwell's guy, there's not enough trees to hang a man, not enough water to drown him.
2: And not enough soil to bury him in. There you go. So you right, did, uh, okay. But nonetheless, you'll find the odd tree. Beaten by the wind. Right. And you could picture the two characters, Vladimir and Estragon, standing there by the tree, and there you have Gotto. Wow. And uh, that's the genius. Beckett took the, the lowest people, the tramps, mm-hmm. living on the side of the road and put them onto the, onto the stage and wrote that famous play.
4: Charming spot, inspiring prospects. Let's go. We can't. Why not?
1: We're waiting for Gotto. Ah. <laughs>
0: I'm Rick Steves. We're speaking with Barry Maloney about Irish literature, touring the writers and the artists of Ireland. Of course, we could spend uh, all our lives reading and getting into James Joyce and Yeats and so on. If I'm a little lazier, I'm heading off to Ireland and I want to kind of get into the mood and I want to enjoy a couple of movies before my trip. What should I see?
2: Well, if you want to connect with the history, there's one fantastic movie based on a play called The Field. The Field. Written by John B. Keane, a Kerry playwright. All right. And it tells the story of the Irish emotional attachment to the land and how that creates bloodshed, basically.
0: And that's the foundation of so much of this literature and, and, and the character of the Irish people, this connection with the land.
2: Yeah, so much of Ireland is in that movie. You've got the, the, the farming connection, the strong emotional connection with the land. You've got the, uh, you know, the, the real spirit of the Irish is in that. So I'd recommend that. The field. If you want to come towards more modern times, there's a great movie called The Wind That Shakes the Barley.
0: The Wind That Shakes the Barley.
2: Starring Killian Murphy, uh-huh. a Cork man, Cork actor. You'd have seen him in movies like Batman Begins. Oh yeah, but uh, in that movie, it's the story of the Civil War and the bloody birth of the Irish nation, which you know has ripples right down to today. It's the reason today that we're a neutral country and our police force are unarmed, because of the Civil War and how it made brother fight brother and tore the country apart. So,
0: hmm. you know what's interesting about Ireland is your history is so close. I mean, the famine was a almost biblical scale, and it was right there in the 19th century, the Civil War uh, and your War of Independence. It was after World War One. Yeah,
2: 1922.
0: Within living memory of people today. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible.
1: T'was harder still to bear the shame of foreign chains around us. And so I said, the mountain glen, I'll seek it morning. Join the bold, united men While soft wind shakes the barley
0: Barry, if you could take me to something just so simple and fundamental that sort of um, represents this literary spirit and this this way that the Irish people communicate and come together, what would it be?
2: I suppose uh, a village crossroads. Maybe after a big event, like winning winning a football game where you see all the characters of the town out together celebrating... There is that phrase, dancing at the crossroads. So
0: this is where, in, in the middle of nowhere, a tiny little hamlet or a farming community, the two roads that mm-hmm. crisscross, where they meet, mm-hmm. people will come together. Yeah, people and, come together. And what will they do?
2: Well, the person who dominated 20th century Irish politics, Eamon de Valera, he had a, a mythical vision. He had a vision of what he wanted to create in Ireland. And he wanted to create an area where, and he's been constantly requoted on this, comely maidens were dancing at the crossroads. So it's a bit of a picture postcard. So even wanted to create an era yeah. where comely maidens could dance by the crossroads. And uh, some say it was idealist, a bit of a picture postcard uh, event, you know? But uh, well, still, yeah. still it happens today. And if you, see, <laughs> like if you see people, the best thing I could say to people going to Ireland is talk to the people. And the people who love talking are what we call corner boys. People, you see them. You'll see them just standing. On the corner. On the corner, watching the world go by. Comely t- maidens too? Uh, usually they're watching the comely maidens. Walk the, by. <laughs> the
0: corner boys are watching the comely maidens. Yeah, exactly. Lots to see and do and talk about when you go to Ireland. Barry Maloney, thank you so much. Thank you, Rick.
1: Right, this is a well-known Dublin drinking
3: song called The Waxy's Dargle. <laughs> Here's a piece of good advice I got from a fishmonger When your food is scarce and you see the hearse You know you've died of hunger <laughs> What do you have? <laughs> a pint. I'll have a pint with you, sir. And if one of us doesn't order soon, we'll be thrown out of the boozer. Beautiful. Well done. (laughs) Stop, stop. You're you're, you're wasting valuable drinking time, but thank you very much.
0: Thanks to the folks at the Dublin Literary Pub Crawl for letting us tag along. Their website is dublinpubcrawl.com. William Wallace and Gene Openshaw open up Michelangelo's early world in Florence. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. If there's a rock star in art history, it's got to be Michelangelo. He's been packing him in for 500 years. Think of being a leader in a cultural explosion where the epicenter was Florence, bringing Western civilization out of the Middle Ages and into the modern world. And think of the struggles and the challenges and the complexity of that age when we've got Christian medieval thinking and modern humanism coming together, Where we've got the Medicis and their elite friends up in the palaces and hungry peasants out on the streets rumbling. And in the middle of it all, Michelangelo was there, chipping away on that marble. Today we're going to talk about Michelangelo's Florence for sightseers, and I'm joined by two scholars on the topic. Professor William Wallace has written six books on Michelangelo. His latest book is Michelangelo, the Artist, the Man, and His Times. And Professor Wallace comes to us from Washington University in St. Louis, where he's a professor of art history. Professor Wallace, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I'm joined by Gene Openshaw, who's uh, worked with me for years as a guide, and Jean is the co-author of our guidebook, Europe 101 History and Art for Travelers. Gene, thanks for joining us.
3: Always a pleasure.
0: Now, when we think about traveling to Florence and appreciating the age of Michelangelo, it's a challenge for us to to kind of put ourselves back 500 years, but this was a, a heady time when when we're coming out of the Dark Ages, and we've got this fancy, famous Renaissance. But, Professor Wallace, did the guys in the street know what was going on, or was this just up in the Medici's palace?
5: No, I think they actually really did know. They were living in a modern world. We trace our beginning of banking and international trade to this time, and this was a city that was flourishing and full of wealthy people, and they absolutely were confident
0: that they were reinventing the modern world. Now, in your new book, Michelangelo, the artist, the man in his times. You talk about Michelangelo had noble roots. Did you mean genetically or because he was an insider with the Medici elites?
5: No, because of the antiquity of his family. As is still true today, the antiquity of your family is the measure of your social prestige. And so Michelangelo was extraordinarily proud that his family was a family that he could trace his roots back 600 years
0: Gina, as you travel in Florence, do you pick up on that at his family home? Or, or
3: You know, Bill talks about how it's noble and long lineage, but there's little doubt that his family had fallen on somewhat harder times. Um,
5: that's true. So yeah. in
3: a sense, his aristocratic roots really come from the two families that he grew up in, the Buonarottis with their long lineage, but somewhat a blue-collar element, and the Medici family where he spent his teenage years living right in the Medici Palace put those two together, and he definitely saw himself as an aristocrat. And if I can add one more thing, in your lead-in, you'd mention how Florence was the epicenter of this big Renaissance cultural phenomenon that was blossoming all over Europe. Well, the very epicenter of that in Florence was the Medici Palace. That was Michelangelo's crib when he was growing up in his Hmm. teenage years.
0: Now, was Michelangelo, did he see himself as a champion of the common man, or was he a hired hand of the aristocracy?
5: I think he was very much a hired hand, but of the very best and most important people in society, he ended up working for nine different popes, and these are the most
0: powerful and the richest people in in the world. But they were just hiring his grade school buddy, weren't they?
3: Well, in some way. Didn't he as a a playmate? When when two
5: of the Medici, in fact, that he grows up with become pope, yes, the first Florentine pope ever then hires Michelangelo. So this is a very lucky
0: coincidence. Isn't this an indication of what a small world it was for the educated people or the elites when uh, two of your buddies, when you're just a kid... You're just playing stickball. They become popes.
3: Yeah, well, think of the world that he grew up in. Michelangelo, he knew Leonardo da Vinci personally. They competed in a painting contest. He was sort of the adopted son of Lorenzo the Magnificent, the most famous man in Europe. Lorenzo's own son grows up to be pope. Well, that was the guy that Michelangelo sat next to in class growing up. Uh, The pope has to battle Niccolò Machiavelli, a political radical. You know, all of these things were going on at the same time, and Michelangelo was right in the thick of it.
5: In a very small city. I mean, we're talking about a city of about 45,000 people. Everybody knew
0: everybody else, especially the people who were... Especially the uh, it, capable networked people. The higher the high up high fu- energy. that's types. right. You know, exactly. uh, Gene Openshaw has put together this uh, wonderful spread, and I got to say in our book Europe 101, that's called the Class of 1500. And here, it's it's a little bit of a stretch, but you've got in the same class, in the same generation anyways, you got... Christopher Columbus, Nicky Machiavelli, Al Durer, Lorenzo the Magnificent, Pope Leo X, Savonarola, Amerigo Vespucci, Erasmus, Michelangelo, Henry VIII, Leonardo da Vinci, and Martin Luther, all living in the same generation and many of those people in the same city. Pretty impressive high school class. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> and uh, like Gene said, it was a small world. Uh, these people communicated, they wrote letters, they uh, employed each other. And as travelers, we can appreciate that. Gene, if you're in Florence and you want to get a sense of this heady
3: time, where do you go? If you want to get the background of it, you just take a basic walk through Florence. The Uffizi courtyard you've got statues of all of these famous people. But Michelangelo could have stood, say, right in the center of town, right in front of the Duomo, and he would have seen it practically as a museum showcasing the work of the two previous generations that practically invented the Renaissance. You'd look up. There's the dome, made by Filippo Brunelleschi, patterned on an ancient building that was an engineering feat that matched that of the ancients. He'd look on the facade of the church. There's statues by Donatello, these realistic, heroic, brooding statues that recall the the classical world and that inspired Michelangelo. He'd spin 180 degrees on his heel. He'd look at the baptistry with its bronze doors, uh, with these realistic scenes made by Lorenzo Ghiberti where he practically invents the concept of creating the illusion of a three-dimensional scene on what's virtually a two-dimensional surface. Right there, you're immersed in Michelangelo's world and the world that he
0: grew up in. You're on the cusp of something very exciting. You had these pioneers that Michelangelo, like you said, walked down the street and he'll see him. Donatello, his David, I understand, was the first freestanding male nude to be sculpted in a thousand years. That's right he would have been locked up for indecent uh, sculpture uh, a generation before that. Donatello made that leap and Michelangelo must have been inspired by it. You got the cathedral. It was built in Gothic times, right? And they left the hole for the spire open because they didn't have the technology to build a dome yet. Knowing that spires were old school, we're going to get Renaissance here, we're going to go classical style, And Brunelleschi, the Florentine, came along with the technical know-how to put that dome on top. How
5: typical of the Italians to actually begin a church before they knew how they were going to finish it. They they were very confident that God would send Brunelleschi to save things. He would find Florence a perfectly recognizable place now to the time because this is one of the reasons why I think we're so attracted to the city is because it so easily evokes the time that Michelangelo, Leonardo, and Raphael were living there.
0: And to take that notion that Jean was explaining, which is just, to me, I've never even thought of it, jean walking down the streets, pretending you're in Michelangelo's mindset, how new and fresh and radical these innovations were, you can step into the Orsan Michele Church and you're going right back into the Middle Ages. Absolutely. You've got candlelit, gold leaf, pointy, lacy altarpiece, you know, with this very, very medieval sort of iconic altar and go, wow, this is medieval Christian art. And then you can step across the street or take a look at the niches in that church, and you see the modern age.
3: Yeah. And everywhere you go in Florence, really, we've talked about Michelangelo growing up in the cradle of the Renaissance, which certainly is true. But he also grew up in a very Christian world. And those things side by side, uh, you can see them in Florence all over, but they very much were the two poles that dominated Michelangelo's life, the Christian and the pagan renaissance, uh, medieval humility and piety, and renaissance confidence in humanism.
0: Do I understand that when you think about humanism and medieval piety and, and so on, in the Middle Ages, the most noble art form was architecture because it was the house of God, and it was okay to put energy into that, and the other stuff, tapestries, windows, painting, sculpture, embellished the house of God, so it was okay to do that too. Then, in a humanist age, you can just make a fancy statue for a fancy family and put it in their fancy courtyard. But we should always remember these aren't contradictory
5: poles. Those poles that Jean mentions are absolutely complementary. You are both being uh, observant of God by being a humanist and you're being
0: a human by being godly. So Renaissance humanism is powered by Christian Absolutely. faith. It's not a repudiation of God, exactly. but it's just saying there's a modern kind of faith, and that's not to take it this superstitial bound down in church hall. You know, translating the Bible into the people's language, uh, Martin Luther, same generation, same sort of confidence, right? We don't need the word of God in Latin to be interpreted for us. We're humanists. We can get it in our language, we can read it, and we can then as some leaders would say, chart our own path to hell. Of course, that was a little
5: bit shocking for everybody living in Italy to see the Bible translated up in the north. Uh So that was radical for that (laughs) time. That was very radical. But is
0: it tied into this humanism where you can look at it as not an anti-religious thing, but a a new kind of religious thing? I think
5: certainly Martin Luther was thinking that way, but it was a threat to the Catholic Church. Of course. And the
0: Catholic Church had all of these guys by the... They had them them controlled.
3: Yeah. And, And who excommunicated Martin Luther? It was Pope Leo X, the young man that Michelangelo grew up with in the Medici household.
0: Okay, so when we're thinking about humanism, if I go to the academia where you find uh, Michelangelo's David standing like an altar, this is really a celebration of humanism. And no matter how many times
5: you've seen it in books, to step into that academia museum and see the David, people just inevitably go Oh, my God. It is big. It is beautiful. Amen.
0: Amen. (laughs) And it's under a dome. It was like purpose-built. That
5: building was built for that. Was it purpose-built? For the statue. Because it works perfect. It does. It's a really beautiful space. The other thing we can say about it, it's really if you think about Florence as a medieval city, the David is a large-scale Roman marble nude placed in the middle and the center of a medieval city, completely transforming its character into
0: a modern a modern world. Huh. That's an emblem for that. It is. That's indeed. a powerful statement. A very powerful think about statement. It, at the front door of the uh, exactly. where, where the city government. Precisely. Was. And we got to remember these were city states back then.
5: And very proud of their city-state independence.
0: Which is one thing that motivated these Florentines to really do well.
5: And Florentines always identified with David because David, of course, is the young shepherd boy who's subjected to the much greater power of Goliath. And Florence always saw itself as a kind of small city-state against the much larger
0: powers of Venice, Milan, and, and Genoa. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Professor William Wallace. Professor Wallace's new book is Michelangelo, the Artist, the Man, and His Times. Professor Wallace teaches uh, art history at Washington University in St. Louis. And I'm joined also by Gene Openshaw, co-author of Europe 101, History and Art for the Travelers. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Sherry's on the line in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Sherry, thanks for your call.
4: Thank you for having me. I um, I was enjoying your discussion about David, and he's certainly an awesome statue. And the prisoners that are in the same building, uh, escaping from the stone, are, are a favorite of mine. But there's a couple of things that are maybe a little lesser visited. One is the statue, which I believe is um, a self-portrait of Michelangelo, called the Deposition, and it's a uh, removal of Jesus from the cross with with Nicodemus um, as Michelangelo as Nicodemus and that's really a very powerful statue and uh, the other thing that I remember was the stairway at the Laurentian library which was so graceful and reminded me of a cascade of water coming down into pools at the bottom so both a sculpture of um, statues and also the architectural features of Michelangelo around Florence are just amazing.
5: I think those are both very good recommendations for the next time you go to Florence, because that great statue of uh, Nicodemus and Michelangelo, he carved that actually as his own grave marker. So indeed, this was an extremely important and powerful portrait of himself and a, a sort of guarantee of his salvation on earth by carving this beautiful sculpture. And so I totally agree with you. And that, stairway of the Laurentian Library, we tend to forget that Michelangelo is also an extremely important architect, and that he probably had a greater effect on the history of architecture than he even did on the history of sculpture. So... You're absolutely right in making those two very good recommendations. If
0: I could uh, just make it clear for listeners, when people want to see this wonderful Michelangelo deposition or Pieta, it is in the Museo del Duomo, the museum of the cathedral, immediately behind the cathedral. I was thinking how some of the Michelangelo art, you know, requires a reservation to see and long, long lines. There's never a line for that, and it is a very powerful piece of art that a lot of people don't even check out when they're in Florence. One of the better museums precisely for that reason. I agree. And then... When we think about the, the word deposition and pieta, is that the same thing? or
5: They're, they're close. Uh, the pieta is the moment when Mary meditates upon the body of her son, and this is technically a deposition. There okay. are other figures, including the Mary Magdalene and the
0: Nicodemus as well. Gene, it's interesting, this whole notion of the underappreciated uh, value of Michelangelo's architecture as a sightseer. How do you appreciate that?
3: I'll touch on some of the things that Sherry talked about um, when she talks about that Laurentian library and his work as an architect. Well, that is part of the Church of San Lorenzo, this large concept where where Michelangelo was hired as an architect to decorate the facade of that church. If you go there today and you look for this facade and and what you stare at is just bare brick, it's just to this day. Uh, in fact, all of the things that Sherry mentioned are part of this about 20-year period of Michelangelo's life, where he worked on project after project after project, and really completed very little. The Laurentian Library, he did complete the staircase, but nothing else. Left unfinished. So the, the staircase was one element it, of what should have been a glorious facade by Michelangelo. Redone, a redone entire
0: library. And today you see the rustic brick facade kind of uh, roughed up so that
3: the veneer can be put onto it. Exactly. And he was hired to do the veneer. But that veneer of the, of the Church of San Lorenzo left unfinished. Um, and why fa- was that? That's a that's a long story. <laughs> it's a long story. Yeah. They ran out yeah. of money. Let's say. Yeah. <laughs> but was
0: <what>, was the <laughs> ego of some other patron that came in and, and got him sidetracked on another project?
3: Well, let's
5: think about all those marbles that intended for the facade. We end up seeing actually in the Medici Chapel today a oh, lot of that, that marble stuff was is destined is to be reused. The, absolutely, materials very very facade. valuable.
0: All right. So, uh, Sherry, that was a great comment. Thank you very much, Sherry. Thank
4: you. It makes me want to go back to Florence.
0: To so, make us too. Gene, we've been trying to take us back 500 years to the age of Michelangelo, not counting being in a museum. Where would you go in Florence? Where would you take a visitor in Florence to feel the Florence of Michelangelo most vividly?
3: I would take them to the Church of Santa Maria Novella, which is right near the train station, just about a two-minute walk from the train station. And I would take them to the main altar and the chapel that's behind there. This is not done by Michelangelo. There's a series of frescoes done by Ghirlandaio. But this is where Michelangelo worked as a 13-year-old boy in his first artistic gig. He was hired by Ghirlandaio to mix plaster for this fresco work. And in there, you can look at the frescoes. You can see the pictures of Florence today because the paintings show... The men and women, men in their striped Romeo-type leotards and their Juliet-type dresses with their jewels on them, it shows the actually famous people of the time. You can picture young Michelangelo working in there, getting his first glimpse of what it would really be like to be a working artist. Michelangelo, who was born in Florence, could then take that cultural phenomenon of the Renaissance, spread it to Rome throughout Italy, and it eventually spread all over Europe. Professor Wallace,
0: everybody looks at David and, and is impacted, inspired. When you look into the eyes of David, what do you see?
5: Well, Rick, I think that's why we need to go to Florence again and look at it in person, because we can't actually look into the eyes of David. We're always looking up to David. And I think why it continues to move us is because it's so awesome in its scale and its accomplishment that we don't actually have access to the eyes of David. It's always a world larger than ourselves and in some ways inspires us to feel like we're part of a world larger than ourselves. And so this is why I think even 500 years later, we can still be moved by seeing this figure, even though it's as familiar as it is from books.
0: And we can be appreciative of that great generation, the generation of Michelangelo that helped bring us out of the Middle Ages and into the modern world.
5: Who did more than anybody else to help raise the stature of artists and make art into something that's really modern and significant still 500 years
0: later. Professor William Wallace, Jean Openshaw, Michelangelo Bonarroti, thank you all very much. Thank you. Grazie. Prego. <laughs>
3: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to the folks at the Dublin Literary Pub Crawl
0: and to Aaron Harding for helping with today's show. There's more online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
5: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and
0: writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence, and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.